Coming up today, we find out about the people and ideas tackling the climate crisis and head on an adventure deep into Cornwall's lithium mines. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Koala. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hello. This was the week when Amazon announced Astro, a cutesy robot assistant that's made of pure nightmares. The robot dog has a 10-inch touchscreen, a face, and uses facial recognition to track your behaviour and follow you around your house on four wheels. The price is $1,000 and your freedom. This is also the week that petrol stations in the UK had long queues to fill up with some running out of petrol. Government and industry leaders say there is enough petrol to go around and blame the crisis partly on panic buying. This is combined with an ongoing shortage of lorry drivers. And finally, this was the week when the British government said it will make it easier to research and develop gene-edited crops in England after the UK's departure from the European Union by relaxing the rules. Environment Secretary George Eustace has said the move could allow farmers to grow crops that are stronger and more resistant to climate change. Now, on the petrol shortage thing, it's a bit curious that the government would choose to blame ordinary punters, so to speak, rather than itself, right? You look at the root cause rather than... It's very hard to sort of disentangle, you know, where the problem lies. And it probably is, I think, a bit of a combination of things, right? You know, so I think what the government's saying is basically there isn't a fuel around the UK, but there's this issue with having lorry drivers and not just, you know, petrol lorry drivers across sort of all different uh, sectors. Um, so getting the fuel to petrol stations, there's been a bit of a problem there. And then as soon as people heard about this problem, you know, people get panicked and then they think I'd better fill up, you know, oh, everyone else is getting fuel. I need to drive my car later in the week. So I'm going to go and get some as well. So I think it's probably a mix of things. But it's, it's you know, from the outside, it's very difficult to tell where the problem lies. And I think it's probably a little bit of everything. Very smugly, uh, our family car has two thirds of a tank. Um, because we filled it up weirdly in France a couple of weeks ago um, before any of this even happened. It's a very strange time to be alive when that is somehow something to be impressed by. All right, uh, what did we learn this week? Natasha? Oh, this week I learned about the colours, James. Um, I learned Go on. <laughs> I learned that orange was a fruit before it was a colour. I had walked about my whole life thinking that orange was just the most famous orange thing, but oranges are in fact... The first. It's the it's the egg before the chicken or the chicken before the egg. I don't know anyway. So it's named after the fruit. And the actual colour orange didn't emerge until the 1500s. And before then, it was known as yellow-red. And so then I looked up other things about colours. And I, I found out that blue is often confused with yellow, or it was often confused with yellow, because it has its root in a proto-Indo-European word, bell, which means to shine. So, yeah. So, so what? They... In, in ye olden times or very olden mm. times, if someone saw something that was yellow, like a buttercup or the sun, I guess, yeah. although you shouldn't look at the sun, they'd say, oh, look at that yellow red Shiny. thing. 
<laughs> look at that shiny thing. And the thing is, is that there's lots of things throughout history that involve colours and confusion. So I, for example, went to this place called Castleton a few years ago, and there's a place called the Blue John Caves. And I thought it was like a man called Blue John that maybe liked blue things because there's like lots of blue rocks in this cave and it's the only place in the world and it turns out that when they first discovered this blue rock they went to France where all the geologists the most famous geologists were and the geologists said that it was blue Jean <laughs> and they mistook it and in a very Yorkshire accent said blue John and so that's why it's not in fact a pirate it's in fact a colour and that's, that's <laughs> I don't know how I got from one place to the other in this <laughs> This happened. No. Thank you for that essential follow up. Amit, what did you learn this time? I'm never going to beat that takeaway. That was marvelous. Um, (laughs) I I learned that the human body is getting colder. Uh, Researchers at Stanford looked at thousands of temperature measurements and found that normal body temperatures have dropped by a fraction of a degree since the 19th century. They think that the best explanation might be lower rates of infection. Which is a, a curious fact to bring up during a global pandemic which i imagine uh, I'm, I'm not, i don't mean to be clear but i imagine that that would have some impact seeing as so many people are being infected yeah i guess that might cause the trend to reverse yeah i guess if you if you did actually manage to take everyone's temperature right now there would be a, a slight increase in the average but no this is more things like chronic inflammation you know people were suffering from things like tuberculosis or whatever and even if once they'd recovered they still had this chronic inflammation that might have raised their body temperature even though the symptoms have subsided and and so there was a a smaller study Uh. more recently in pakistan where rates of tuberculosis are still quite low and they found that actually in that study people had body temperatures that looked more similar to what they were in the 19th century so it could be to do with levels of kind of underlying disease within the population interesting stuff speaking of changing temperatures I'm quite proud of that segue. That's very good. Vicky, take us away <laughs> on our first story this week. Yeah, so the latest issue of Wired's print magazine is out now. Do go and get yourself a copy if you're not already a subscriber. And ahead of COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which is being held in Glasgow next month, we've been looking at some of the innovative solutions people around the world are working on to slow the climate crisis. Instead of focusing on the politicians or the daunting prospect of tackling global emissions, we've been highlighting individuals and groups who are working on different, smaller scale projects that tackle one aspect of the climate crisis puzzle wherever they happen to be. Now, unusually for Wired, we had actually had three cover stars representing completely different approaches to this problem from across the world. Uh, And reading through it, I was really struck by the huge range of things that are being tried by different people including Vicky, a project to restore forests in Hawaii, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, uh, Jill Wagner is leading a project on Hawaii's big island to turn an area that's become a bit of an arid wasteland back to forest. This this part of the island was once covered in sandalwood forests, but it was torn down by loggers in the 19th century and animal grazing has since meant that the trees never regrew. So Wagner, who is head of forestry at a tree planting startup called Terraformation, has planted about 5,500 plants in this spot quite a small area in terms of global forest uh, and most of them are acacia koa trees which are common in Hawaii. She's also been planting an abandoned macadamia nut farm with mahogany trees and the idea is to then tackle some of the world's most desolate areas selecting different plants that work best for whichever location they're needed in. I think at Wired we spend a lot of time talking about 
future gazing stuff you know these kind of really innovative really breakthrough technologies that we're going to need to tackle this climate change problem you know carbon capture or nuclear fusion or whatever it might be but sometimes the low-tech solutions are, are the better ones you know it could really be as simple as planting more trees except that there are some complications right yeah i mean you're right and actually some of those things you bring up carbon capture that's also included in this package there's different ways to approach this problem of climate change and i think you know it's worth basically pursuing whatever we can right um, and tree planting it seems very simple and it is a really effective way to sequester carbon we all know that vegetation's great at taking carbon dioxide out of the air trees are good but it's not necessarily as simple as it sounds. When you're planting trees on this scale, sometimes in quite inhospitable conditions, it does throw up a lot of challenges. One of them's water. Younger plants in particular really need irrigation. Their roots aren't developed enough to reach the water that might be lower down in the soil. And so in Hawaii, Terraformation has built a solar-powered off-grid water desalination plant, which turns this kind of brackish water from a local well into fresh water that can be used to irrigate the plants. Ultimately, having trees in the ground does help the soil to hold on to more water. So, you know, it should be easier for more plants that come along later. But when you're starting from scratch, water and irrigation can be a real issue. There's also the issue of finding enough seeds. In 2008, Wagner started the Hawaii Island Seed Bank. She's been freezing, drying and storing seeds for reforestation projects. Again, maybe not something you think about, but when you're trying to start from scratch and, you know, plant thousands of plants at once, you need something to start it with. And she's also designed a shipping container sized portable seed bank, um, which is shipping one to a partner organization in Uganda to help forest 450 acres over there. So it's about getting the right materials to the right place as well. With my uh, cynical hat on, which is obviously the hat I wear most of the time, you can kind of see this as like nibbling around the edges, right, of this huge problem. These aren't massive projects in the grand scheme of things. Like, how much of a difference could projects like this actually make in practical terms when we're talking about carbon in the atmosphere yeah i think it's that thing when you think of this big global emissions target any single project just seems to be a drop in the ocean right but when you put them together they start to add up so yeah you know reforesting a few hundred acres isn't really gonna move the dial but if you if that combines with other forest restoration projects suddenly you can make quite a difference so climate nonprofit project drawdown reckons that reforesting 709 million acres of degraded land in the tropics could sequester between 55 and 85 billion tons of co2 by 2050 and that's you know a really impressive number obviously it requires this being done on such a, a big scale but if you have people who are working in their local area doing little bits of forest here and there you know, eventually maybe we can start hitting some of those targets. But it does have to be done right as well. We have seen examples of reforestation projects where plants simply haven't survived long term. Um, you know, some of the mangrove forests that have been restored in Sri Lanka, for example, um, when you go back and visit years later, they're just no longer alive. And that means that those areas are never actually successfully reforested, even with the best of intentions at the beginning. So, it's really important to choose the right plants that are going to thrive in that area and that are going to, you know, give that desired effect of sequestering carbon. It's really important to tend to them correctly, especially when they're young and a bit more vulnerable, and to get buy-in from local communities to make sure that the projects suit local needs. Because if you don't have that local support, then they're just not going to thrive. 
Yeah, and actually on that note, so we looked at a few other projects in this area. Um, there's one called Eden Restoration, which uh, aims to provide stable employment to people who live near areas affected by deforestation, which often tend to be quite you know poor areas where employment isn't necessarily uh, very high. Um, so Eden Restoration is a project that's planted more than 660 million trees. There are other projects that make sure that they kind of track the life cycle of the tree through the whole process to make sure that it does actually survive and it is doing what they said it was going to do when they planted it. Um, Ecosia was another um, thing that we've talked about on the podcast before. That's the search engine that uses its profits to plant trees, um, estimating that it takes about 45 searches to plant a tree. And, and tree planting is just one of the areas that we look at in this feature, right? There's There's another slightly overlooked challenge where a small change on a, a wide scale could make quite a big difference. Yeah, so with one of our other cover stars, we wanted to highlight basically, you know, the fact that there are different immediate challenges when it comes to the climate crisis, depending on where you are in the world. And one big contributor to emissions in many African countries is cook stoves, which cause a lot of indoor pollution. I mean, as well as that being an environmental issue, it's also a really big threat to human health. So Charlotte Magai, founder of Makuru Clean Stoves in Kenya, she was inspired to make an improved cook stove actually after her child was injured by a boiling stove that tipped over. And it's not just burns that you have to be worried about. In Kenya alone, around 21,000 deaths a year are caused by indoor air pollution, which is largely a result of cook stoves kicking out harmful particles. It's not just the health problems as well. There's also a, a wider climate problem. So the methane kind of carbon dioxide they release into the atmosphere obviously contributes to global warming, but they also release a substance called black carbon, which absorbs light and heat so well that it has a warming effect that's 1,500 times greater than CO2. Black carbon can get carried by the wind and it's been found to have settled at the poles where it coats glacial ice and reduces its reflective power, which kind of makes this problem worse. But how has Magai solved this problem with her clean stoves that she's developing so she's been working on developing a stove that's more stable to start off with so it's safer and also just burns more efficiently uh, it uses 60 percent less fuel and aims to tackle the problem of incomplete burning which is what leads to a lot of these harmful particles being released into the air it's when you've got fuel that is sort of part burned but not fully efficiently burned and um, so that's what she's been working on with her prototypes um, and with the stoves that she now has produced. And she's also working on developing cleaner briquettes for burning, because obviously if you're burning charcoal, that charcoal is probably coming from a, a source to begin with that isn't great for the environment. You know, you're chopping down trees to create fuel. Um, so the briquettes that she is currently trying to develop are actually made from agricultural waste, trying to turn a waste product into something useful again. Now, as with the tree planting, there's also a social element to this, right? So in her work, Magali quickly discovered that the health burden of polluting cookstoves disproportionately affects women. They're the ones who are operating them often in these areas. They're the ones who have to collect the fuel, which means that they miss out on education and other opportunities. If a, a cooking stove is 60% more efficient, that means that there's less fuel that needs to be collected for it, which wins back time for people. But she's also had to do kind of outreach programs and, and convince them to adopt this new technology, right? Yeah, it's a really good example, I think, of um, something that fits at the intersection of broader social issues. You know, cook stoves are an environmental issue. 
They're also a gender equality issue. They're also an income inequality issue. Um, you know, it's all these things coming together. And some of the people that we spoke to in this piece um, said that, you know, that's one reason why they kind of fall through the cracks because everyone thinks that someone else is dealing with this problem. And so Magai has been trying to address some of these broader issues by partnering with local organisations, educating people about the hazards of coke stoves and increasing awareness of these climate issues to try and bring that all together into one piece. And one of the major themes that came out in our broader package of looking at all these different ideas to address the climate crisis um, was the need to switch to electric. So if we move away from um, Africa, we went over to San Francisco. And Amit, you spoke to someone who's trying to make the switch to electric more possible and better for the environment by improving on battery technology. That's right. Yes, I spoke to uh, Jean Berdajewski, who used to work at Tesla and who's now the founder of Sila Nanotechnologies, which is a company that instead of looking for a breakthrough back to technology is trying to improve the current technology we use lithium ion batteries and make them a lot better. So what's the problem with current lithium ion batteries? Because there's something of an emblem if you think of, you know, the switch to cleaner products, to, um, you know, not using fuel, using electric products instead, you kind of think lithium ion's good. Yeah, I mean, and it's good. You know, it's it's powered the modern world. It's powers the phones that we're holding and we're recording this podcast on, the laptops we're using to do the Zoom call. But it's not good enough to do the things that we want it to do in terms of energy density, storage, etc. You know, for electric cars or electric flight or you know heavy vehicles using electricity, it's not quite good enough for that. And there hasn't been a new battery technology breakthrough since the nineteen nineties when Sony brought out the first cassette Walkman. Um, so researchers have been looking for things to replace lithium ion for a long time, you know, carbon supercapacitors, sulfur and sodium based batteries, but they haven't really made much progress. And Berdajewski is betting on instead that there'll be big improvements available to unlock with existing technologies. So how is Berdachevsky and um, Silas Tech- Nanotechnologies, how are they making the lithium ion battery better? So first off, a bit of a science lesson in how a battery works. So a battery's got four parts, the anode, the cathode, the electrolyte, and the separator. And essentially, when a battery gets used, lithium ions shuttle from the anode to the cathode through the electrolyte, and then when you charge it, they go back the other way. And what Sila is doing is aiming to make lithium ion more effective by replacing the anode, which is usually made of graphite, with one that's made of nano-engineered silicon. So the reason that batteries degrade over time is that this graphite anode shrinks and swells when it's charged and discharged. Um, when I spoke to Berdajewski a while ago, he compared it to an apartment block and each room in the apartment block holds a lithium ion. But when the lithium ion kind of enters and leaves the room, the, each room kind of swells up and shrinks and that causes damage over time. So the silicon anode that they've developed can swell and contract more easily without degrading, which means that it can hold about 24 times as much energy which offers a 50% improvement in terms of energy density for these batteries and storage capacity. Um, The company's been working with BMW and Daimler on electric vehicles, and it also launched a... Its technology is inside a new fitness tracker that launched in September, which is the first new battery technology in a consumer product since the Walkman in the 1990s. That's a really interesting problem. I actually remember I once had a laptop that broke precisely because of that issue because the battery swelled so much after too much use and degraded so much that it actually sort of you know popped out of the casing it was so kind of over overused 
I mean, why stick to lithium ion batteries at all when we know that, you know, they do have these shortcomings? Why not do something entirely different, start from the beginning? So, the, like, Berger makes a really compelling case for this when, when you talk to him. I mean, I think I've done a lot of reporting around batteries and the people developing new technologies also make a very compelling case for their technologies and why their technologies are going to be the next big thing. But... The main things he says are that the first thing is that it slots into existing production processes. You know, there's a huge industry around building batteries and we've honed the production process over the years and made it way more efficient. And and they're very, very good at at producing lithium-ion batteries. So if you can find a technology that slots into that existing production process, you don't have to change the way factories are designed, which means that it can be brought to market now while other technologies are years or decades away. And, you know, this is a problem for which we need solutions today, not in 10 years' time. Um, Celia's got millions of pounds of funding um, to build a production facility and they're betting that not only the anode but other areas of the battery could also be improved in future to squeeze out even more potential from lithium-ion batteries. Um, The other reasons is to do with lithium itself. It's one of the smallest and lightest elements so it's hard to envisage something if you look at the periodic table that would be better at doing what lithium does than lithium itself. You know there's no hidden element that's going to suddenly unlock this increased energy density and increased energy storage Uh, and the final thing is that it's not fundamentally scarce although easily extractable lithium is under pressure from areas like the lithium triangle in south america and china um, there are other sources of lithium speaking of other sources of lithium we'll get onto that in just a moment you can get the latest issue of Wired right now. Head to wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And I'd also recommend that you sign up to Wired's Chasing Zero newsletter, which is all about solutions to the climate crisis and tackles a lot of the issues that we've been talking about here on the podcast. Head to wired.co.uk forward slash newsletters and click on Chasing Zero to subscribe. It's out every week on a Thursday. All right, I'm going to go back to that segue because it was so neat. Amit, talking of other sources of lithium, or rather Natasha, talking of other sources of lithium, (laughs) earlier this year, you went to see a very small hole in the ground in Cornwall, which somehow is the key to the future of electric vehicles and batteries in the UK. Tell us more about what you found in Cornwall. Yeah, so at the height of maybe lockdown three, I was in Cornwall by myself, um, sort of armed with a backpack full of hotel food, um, basically travelling up a big hill. And what I was going to see was a mining site in Sandini, which is a short drive away from the village that used to be known as the richest square mile in the world. And it's basically a hole in the ground and it's incredibly white clay. It looks like a moonscape. If you look directly at it, your eyes will water. If you have no sunglasses, as I discovered, you're quickly blinded by by the light. So it's it's a really kind of weird location. And in the midst of it, um, people are digging what appears to be from the surface a really, really tiny hole, but it goes really, really deep in the ground. And what they're trying to do is extract exactly what Amit was talking about, lithium iron minerals from uh, very, very far deep beneath the surface and try to extract them to create batteries here in the UK. Now, Cornish Lithium was the company that I went to see at its site digging um, in in this sort of old clay pit in the middle of nowhere in the hills of Cornwall. And you might think of like Poldark, etc. It's not Poldark. It's not near the sea. It's not picturesque. It's the middle of nowhere. It's all very dry and very arid. And it looks it looks so strange. I can't really I think the photographs in the in the piece kind of uh, describe it better than I do. But it's it's 
it's kind of like being on an alien planet. Everything looks white. Everything is kind of bare. It looks really, really stark. And it was quite an interesting thing to see. But it's not an alien planet. It's Cornwall. And what <laughs> Amit was referencing, it's not. It's Cornwall. It's very close by. And what Amit was referencing there is the places where we're used to getting mm. lithium from. But as the demand for it increases, people are having to get more and more creative about ways of finding it. And that's kind of the reason that this is happening in Cornwall, right? Yeah. So uh, Cornish Lithium is one of two companies at the moment in Cornwall trying to extract um, lithium from beneath the surface. And they believe that this could be a, basically a new gold rush for Cornwall, an opportunity to revive an industry in a location that has been long deprived through the lack of mining. A lot of the mines closed down um, in the last few decades. Um, nothing is, is really happening uh, there. And they hope that this will revive things, not just for, for Cornwall, but also for, for the UK. Um, they hope that it will reduce the ecological footprint. So at the moment, when we get um, our lithium iron batteries, they travel several times around the, the earth um, to get to us. They have to go from South America or Australia to China to get processed, to then be sent to Europe, to then be sent to manufacturers, wherever they happen to be, to put in the cars, to then get sent to our car uh, distributors, to then be sent to us. So th there's a huge footprint. And they believe that by manufacturing them in the UK, we can lessen that footprint quite substantially. You've mentioned the mines that used to dot this area before, mm. for anyone unfamiliar with Cornwall's history, that they were tin mines, right? And mm -hmm. what's useful about these dead tin mines is they're allowing these new companies to explore the underground world for lithium. So they know that lots of it's there, but they've got to find it, which is quite an interesting exploratory mission. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's tin, copper, clay and tungsten were the main things that were extracted from Cornwall. And I learned all this in the research for this article. But, but yeah, you've got basically huge pits that were dug a, a, a lot of times a long, long time ago. So you're talking about sort of 1730s, 1740s when the first digs started to appear. And people used to go down with a candle sort of stuck with a bit of clay on, on the helmet. And they used to climb down miles and miles underground. And there would be, you know, fires and they'd pass out and there'd be floods and they would die but they, they there's there's like a lot of kind of dramatic history people in the area are very very proud of their mining history and what they created was basically a load of maps of what they'd done and the people that are trying to dig at the moment decided look it doesn't make sense to try to dig in in wherever in cornwall let's instead use the maps and the information that all these miners had collated over hundreds of years to create almost like a treasure map of our own. And so these companies basically used all of the historical maps. I went to their offices and, you know, you see them unfolding them. It's like a, the size of a small duvet, uh, like a, a maps of, of what where people dug and how they dug. And it looks like warrens under, underground. Sort of, you know, some of them end in dead ends. Some of them are really short. Some of them are really long. They have branches that reach really far underground. And the idea was to superimpose loads of those to make almost like a blueprint. So if you imagine sort of a heist movie it's sort of the same as, as that they've, they've collated all of them and they created what are 3d models using sort of machine learning to know where to dig the idea was it costs a lot of money to dig a hole it, it, incredibly so um, they didn't have a lot of money these are startups they were funded mostly by the government so they needed to try and 
pit the odds in their favour. Uh, so they thought by using this information, and a lot of a lot of the digs actually involved people stumbling across lithium and saying, we don't really need it, it wasn't valuable at the time. So we found lithium here, but it's fine. So they used that to basically create pathways for them to know where to dig. And the way that they dig is kind of, um, it's not straight down. It's sort of like if you punch a straw, uh, through the side of a cup it's sort of diagonal and they passed through all these different places and they had to know where they were digging so that they didn't cause sort of collapses in earth and things like that so that was that was the kind of thing so so the interesting thing about this scenario is that also finding the maps was a complete headache it took a year and a half to collate them um there was an old man somewhere in cornwall that had like hundreds of maps that he had gathered with his friend that they had to find in his attic you know there's sort of loads of different locations that were really unusual where they had to find all this information so that they could make a very 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 educated guess so this kind of gave them a shortcut and a cheap shortcut to allow them to get far down below ground and investigate what was there. But that also created the, the problem of you kind of need to know where the holes in the ground are so that you don't make something collapse. But beyond that, they're using new technologies, right, to find other sources of lithium and make sure that they've got a really, really clear idea of what's going on beneath their feet. Yeah, so about a year ago, um, this, this all kind of kickstarted because uh, there was a finding of world-significant amounts of lithium in Cornwall. And now they have to prove that all of that lithium that they said was there is actually there. So they can't just restrict themselves to digging in sites where you know clay pits and copper pits used to be. They have to, at some point, uh, be able to dig in other locations. And so they won't be able to rely on these maps forever. Not that a lot of these maps are accurate anyway, but, but they, they won't be able to rely on these maps forever. They have to resort to other kinds of technology. So I spoke to other members of the team um, that basically have to fit bits of the puzzle together so that they'll they'll be able to create new dig sites and kind of use the information that they've gathered from their first digs to extrapolate it and use it in other locations. So there's a guy, for example, that's taking pictures of fault lines across the entire of the coast. So they're using drones that are flying um, across across the coast of Cornwall, a lot of it is jagged rock that falls straight into the sea, and you can see the fault lines, which is basically cracks in in the in the rock that extend deep underground inland, and they can see what they look like on the outside. So it's almost like a free dig moment. You can see really really far underground just by looking at the edges of the rocks, and they can then extrapolate that information and say, right, we can see that at, you know three quarters of the way down, quite near a rock that's near the sea, there seems to be a lot of uh, shiny mica, which is where the lithium comes from. If we dig through that we think that we'll be able to find something inland. So that's that's the kind of information they've been using. They also have been testing the waters in like the the sort of the streams and rivers in Cornwall. Um, there's actually quite a number of um, sort of holy water sites in Cornwall. And one of the team was talking to me about how he went to test all of these different waters to see if they had lithium in them. And some of them were completely forgotten about and some of them had been concreted over. And it was all just tr trying to use as much information as possible so that they can guess where the next site might be. Now, these companies, it's important to remember that, as I said before, you know, it costs a lot of money to dig a hole. They, they've been uh, on drilling campaigns to basically prove that where they say there is lithium, there is actually lithium so that they can get more support to kind of grow their companies and, and make sure that they actually, you know, does reach a commercial viable <laughs> proposal. And so um, when they extract things from the ground, that I think the important thing is to, to understand that they're extracting both from, from hard rock and also from water, which I'll, I'll 
I might have to explain a bit later, but but the the hard rock side of things, they basically um, they put in, as I said, like a straw in the ground, and then they extract what looks like a tube of granite, and f- that granite they sort of uh, crush it and they open it up, and that's where the lithium is. So they've been doing sort of ten, twenty holes in the ground in quick succession in these locations to prove that that's where things are but they have to be able to do that in other locations as well and that's why all this tech is so important and that's why they're spending so much time mapping the entire of Cornwall when in fact their dig sites are so far very very small. All right so I'm going to have to ask you to explain yourself you can't mention extracting lithium from water and not explain how it's done so they crush the rock to get the lithium what do they do to the water to find lithium in it? Yeah, so Cornish, so British, it's important. So British lithium is is betting just on rock, and Cornish lithium says we're going to do rock and we're going to do water. And what they have found is that there is a significant amount of lithium in the brines, which is underground water, it's a deep underground under the rocks. And the way it happens is sort of like I don't know how to explain. It. It's, I suppose it's basic erosion, but I don't have a really great analogy for it. But the rock kind of is is getting slapped by the by the water. <laughs> The rock gets slapped by water, rock gets eroded by water, water gets nice little rock bits in it. That's sort of floating around in a nice little brine that no one really, you know, notices, except for when they're trying to do geothermal um, kind of energy creation. And this, there's a project at the moment that's going on that is trying to get, you know, geothermal energy, which is basically gra- gathering the heat from deep under the ground from these sort of... Um, waters which are very hot or hot springs and in those springs they found that there are lots of lithium and the idea is that they're going to again you know straw method suck it all up and and bring it to the surface so that they can then um evaporate the the water from it and use the lithium that they find within now the difficult thing is that unlike rock water moves around and it's very temperamental and therefore it's very hard to know how much lithium will be in the water in the next 20 years for their commercial projects if that makes sense uh, it's tricky it does make sense now this is all <laughs> very early stage and when <laughs> i think about lithium mines which i often do i think about vast <laughs> sites in south america mm-hmm. you know, just huge expanses of land that look like they go on forever and what you're talking about is cornwall which is a big place but mm-hmm. it doesn't have those kinds of landscapes so how much lithium have they extracted so far and how much do they think is there you said globally or world significant quantities of of lithium is cornwall going to be turned into this sort of strange lithium desert like we see in south america or is this more of a a kind of a cottage industry yeah i mean when you think of lithium you do think of the sort of atacama desert kind of you know the big pools they they create these sort of pools of lithium and they let the sun beat down on the water and evaporate it in a natural sort of way unfortunately though it's a desert which means that there's huge kind of um, ecological repercussions to doing that you're extracting water you're taking it away from from a place that's pretty arid anyway and you're not bringing it back and so in cornwall uh, that wouldn't work um because it rains <laughs> so it's like a really specific kind of reason why that wouldn't even make sense as a proposal it rains too much in cornwall for that to to make sense the, the evaporation would be completely redundant that won't that won't work but also there's they're trying to do some really responsible mining here so 
you know, Cornwall, um, its landscape has completely changed thanks to mining. There's uh, what they call the Cornish Alps, which are made up of, you know, bits of clay that basically people have made into mounds that look like mountains. You can see them from afar and they're white and they're completely man-made. A lot of, you know, the holes in the ground haven't been covered up. They've turned into artificial reservoirs of, of water and they people don't want that to happen anymore it's it's not fair to the environment it's not the way you know Cornwall wants to look and so therefore they're trying to be really really responsible so what they're trying to do instead of instead of extracting things and leaving that in the open or even transferring them many many miles away for them to be processed somewhere else um that these companies are trying to set up basically processing plants that will be alongside the dig sites where they can process that sort of raw material and create it in, make it into something that is transportable so you're not you know instead of taking liters and liters of, of water really really far away you're um, extracting the lithium from the water in a in a plant that could be the size of, of like a, a large shed so it's, it's not going to be a blight on the environment or on the landscape and then you you create that sort of lithium i like to think of it as like a puddle it's like a puddle of lithium and then you transport that very small amount um which would then will be a big amount once you once you generate more and more of it somewhere else to be you know put into batteries so it's it's the, the footprint is supposed to be a lot smaller now to the question of how much they've extracted the answer is very very little at the moment they're just trying to prove that it's there so in order for them to create a commercial operation in in Cornwall they have to prove that there is amount, uh, an amount of lithium that will last them for several dig years so we're talking about 30 40 years of of extraction constant extraction on a commercial level and that's a hell of a lot of lithium so first they have to prove it's there and then they have to say how they're going to extract it and then they'll be allowed to do that all right, let's talk timeline. So the British yeah. government fancies the UK post-Brexit Britain as something of a battery powerhouse, whether or not that comes um, into reality remains to be seen, as with a lot of government promises. Um, it wants to build a gigafactory to produce batteries in huge quantities so the UK is self-sufficient in that industry. Fair enough, sounds like a good idea. It also wants to stop selling new petrol and diesel cars and vans by 2030. Very good idea. Mm -hmm. But that means we need lots of lithium for lots of batteries for lots of electric vehicles. So how quickly... Can we go from what's going on in Cornwall right now to batteries on the market in Brexit Britain? It's a tricky question to answer because basically when you look at the deadlines, they've got about four years to get up and running and be commercially viable and be generating enough lithium to put into batteries. And that's a really, really difficult ask. I mean, these companies, they're very entrepreneurial. Um, everyone that you speak to is really optimistic. They're trying really hard to make it go as quickly as possible, but they've got to be prudent and they're trying to do the right thing. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of pressure being put on them. There's a lot of government investment, as I mentioned before, in these projects because the government really really wants this to happen they really want cornwall to be you know the lithium iron battery you know location of europe because although there are reserves in the rest of europe cornwall's is is seems to be the biggest so far discovered so that there's a lot of hope however it does take about a decade to set up a commercial mining site elsewhere and so doing that in less than half of the time is is kind of unreasonable it's, it's very it's very difficult to see a way ahead you're right, the government has been banging on about um, creating a battery gigafactory. Now, Nissan has said that it will create one. They don't have a timeline to build one. I really, I really, really doubt that we're going to meet this deadline. Um, I do understand that this will mean a lot of importing um, of, of electric vehicles in the, in the time being. But I, I think there could be potential for these companies to pick up the slack once they're up and running. I just don't think it will happen in four years. 
It's a strange story to see the very, very early stages of something that seems like it's going to be quite big and, as you say, yeah. globally significant. It's a fascinating read. It's in the latest issue of Wired magazine, wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe if you want to pick up a print copy or head to your local news agents, or you can read it online in a, a massive success for forward planning. It's not online until next Tuesday, so I can't include a link <laughs> in the show notes, but head to wired.co.uk from next Tuesday and you'll be able to read the feature in full online. Your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week to podcast at wired.co.uk and that email account was overflowing with feedback this week Amit you've got something from Richard that's right yeah Richard is a long-time listener who wrote in for the first time about the piece that we did a few weeks ago on name discrimination Richard is from Colombia but ended up with a German sounding surname which he thinks has made his path through life a bit easier than some of his peers I would never claim that my name has brought me all I have now he says I still needed to act on the opportunities, but had not been for it, I would not not had the opportunities presented to me. Richard actually wrote a very, very long email, and which we don't have time to read out in full on the podcast, but thanks so much for writing in, Richard. Speaking of long emails, Natasha, you've got a couple or three to get through on the subject of the Great Resignation. Yeah, that's right. We had some three really good emails about quitting during remote working, which was an article we discussed a few weeks ago on the podcast. And people found it really hard to get closure when they quit when they were working remotely because basically no one was acknowledging that they were going in a, in a nice way. There was no leaving party, nothing like that. But these three listeners have had really different experiences and they wrote in to share them with us. So Stuart Edwards' last day involved going to a small online escape room, which he found very, very fun during lockdown three, said it was an opportunity to work together with my old team one last time with a topic of discussion rather than small talk about the future. Victoria changed her job back in December of last year. Uh, so it was basically height of lockdown and said that she had plenty of one-to-one -one video calls, thoughtful gifts and virtual leaving drinks with mini quizzes about her and nice speeches. And everyone had their Zoom background set to her face and she absolutely loved it. <laughs> and Irfan said, uh, Irfan's seen it all. He said he left his a job of 18 years before the lockdown. Um, so he got to leave with full trimmings, including office parties, speeches, etc. Hugs galore. Then started another higher paying job um, where he was working for six weeks before being told to work from home. Um, and now um, going to a different job where they'll be working from home permanently. And so saying basically, I don't think they're going to have uh, any leaving leaving do or anything like that but it's looking forward to it so you know it, it seems like it's not all doom and gloom uh for, for those people that are leaving while it's still normal to work from home so thank you guys very much for your feedback yep thanks to everybody that emailed in this week we didn't have time to bring all of your emails onto the podcast but we'll try and dig back into the archives of, um, of the podcast inbox and bring a few more emails on over the coming weeks. Podcast.wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us about anything that we talked about this week or if you're going back through the podcast archives, you can get in touch with us about anything from the last few months, in fact, and we'll do our best to include it on the show. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, as always. We'll be back same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.